Hello and welcome to another episode of Justice Rising. I'm your host, Samantha Yannity. On this week's episode, I sit down with four climate advocates who are boldly asking the U.S. Catholic Church, how can we fight for climate justice? These women were part of the Laudato Sea and U.S. Catholic Church program via Catholic Climate Covenant and Crichton University. They are Anna Robertson, who is the Director of Youth and Young Adult Mobilization for Catholic Climate Covenant. Anna Patrice Johnson, who is the U.S. Mission Formation Unit Director and Young Adult Empowerment Team Leader for Marianol U.S. Church Engagement Division. And Emily Burke, who is a recent graduate at Creighton University. And Teresa Tososi, who is the Director of Religious Education at St. Jude Parish in Tuba City, Arizona, where she serves the Navajo people. All these women have been fiercely fighting against climate change and for climate advocacy, specifically for the U.S. Catholic Church, for years, and finally had an opportunity to create a curriculum to mobilize young Catholic advocates. How did all of you get involved with this project? What brought you into this collective space? So I think I'll start on that one because I was the first one. So this project began as um, in summer of 2021, Catholic Climate Covenant coordinated with Creighton University to co-sponsor a conference, a virtual conference called Laudato Si in the U.S. Catholic Church that was devoted to bringing together different sectors of the U.S. Catholic community to gather around the question of how to best animate the spirit of Laudato Si in those respective sectors. And so in the past, it had been in person. The way that the conference had worked in the past was that we brought together a smaller group of people from those different sectors and working groups to, to workshop for the duration of the conference, that question of how to really inspire um, and resource their particular sectors of the church around Laudato Si. For this virtual conference, we decided that we would follow a similar working group model, but in this case, we would work in advance of the conference, and then the working groups would present something at the conference to the broader community to further um, the work of climate and environmental action in the Catholic Church. And so at an early stage, we made a decision that for the young adult sector, rather than drawing together a working group made up only of people who work in the young adult sector in the church, we wanted to draw together a working group of young adults themselves, some of whom also hold formal roles in young adult ministry and in other church positions, some of whom are college students, some of whom work in the public sector, people are from all different walks of life. So we released a, an application and pulled together that working group, but I needed to not do that on my own. And so that's where the rest of these folks came in, who I worked to identify as uh, working group leaders. So I will turn it over to each of them to explain their thought process on saying yes to that invitation. I can go next. For me, I was a senior at Creighton, so I had already been aware of the sort of work that the Covenant was doing with the conference and things like that. 
Uh, I attended the first one. I was anticipating the second one, but I was also working on a divestment movement at Creighton for like my sophomore and my junior year. And then Creighton fully divested on New Year's of 20, like January of 2021. So every, all the students that were organizing, we had this momentum and we were like, what can we do? What can we do? And it was a lull in my like advocacy. And it just so happened that at that point, a connection was made with Anna and I met Anna, talked to her about the work she was doing at the Covenant. She presented this opportunity to me and I, it was like not really a question for me. I didn't really have to decide, oh, is this something I want to spend my time on? I knew right away that this kind of thing, like run by young adults for young adults was something that I wanted to be a part of. I was, like I said, at a lull and searching for somewhere to turn my attention and because of my work at Creighton, like doing uh, fossil fuel divestment stuff, it was all with the framing of Creighton's Catholic Jesuit mission. So I knew that sort of the Catholic environmental space was somewhere I wanted to be. And this was a perfect next step for me to turn my attention and put my energy and effort. And it's been very exciting since. And I, I'll go next. For me, being Native American, and I've said this in our presentations, growing up, you were always told to take care of Mother Earth. Mother Earth will take care of you. And this just happened. I am in a small reservation. I have a small parish. And with the work that I've been doing with the Tekawitha Conference, St. Cattery, being the patron saint of ecology in my parish, I was first year circle leader, or I don't know how you would put it. And we were doing reflections on Laudate Sea. And I think the third Laudate Sea reflection, I just presented to Father Jay. And at the time, Sister Mary, we have to put this in action. I never really, and I've said this with the work that I've done with the USCCB, coming from a small, not only parish, but a small diocese, you don't really get the opportunities to know what Laudate Si is, I never really knew any an encyclical, like nothing like that. You really growing up, you really don't know that, especially in a small parish. So when Laudate Si came, it was like, okay, and how Pope Francis wanted to include more Native American wisdom. It it was just something that you never, for me, it didn't really click until I was with these women. And being able to go green at our parish, that's what we did. We stopped all plastic use in our parish and working with the USCCB, I was introduced to Anna Anna Johnson and it just just snowballed into that effect. And the reason why I said yes to this was not only because it was with other women as women were doing this. And I say this each and every time we even talk to anybody, it's us women doing this. There's not anything like that. And then also too, what made me want to do this was I went to a religious conference and I was trying to nosedive headfirst into anything without TC. And I went to workshops and they did not fulfill anything for me. And so when Anna presented this to me also that we were going to do something spiritually with this reflections, meditation, something I, I just was like, okay, yeah, you're putting both of them together. And that's what I think is once we did our presentation in Washington in November, I already, I told these ladies, people are going to want this. Not only parishes, like Kateri Circle. For the longest time, 
before she was a saint, the main focus was to keep praying to her, pray her to become a saint. And then once that was done, she became a saint. You had elders in our circle, like, what now? What do we do? The main focus was having her become a saint. And like I've said to these ladies, once we are done with the curriculum with this, I really would, I'm pretty sure Kateri Circles would love this because it includes both because it's still so new, this ecological spirituality. It's a range of things that we could do. But for me, it just, I think because my life did growing up, it did revolve around all that. Like it just putting it together that's what made me want to do this, like actually do this. And I've actually, not that I didn't love it before, but now it's just more, it's just exciting. And like I said, it's all by us women. And also too, you have a native voice in this. You can't really have the Dao Te Si or anything like that with actual and native wisdom or a voice in it. And that was the reason another two that I wanted to do this. Cause knowing me, cause I'm the first to be like, I'm not going to listen to that because you don't have an actual person. And so that was one of the things, but I think the main thing was I got to work with three other amazing ladies and we're, and it's been, it's been, I love it. It's been such a good opportunity for me. And for me, I, climate justice has really become a core driver for me as well as growing up I felt like every justice issue mattered to me equally, and I was really interested in diving into all of them. And in my experience of my incredible opportunities to travel around the world, it has become all the more clear that the core driving issue of injustice around the world is climate change and the unequal distribution of the impacts of climate change upon other communities. And I was getting my, at the same time, I was getting my graduate degree in sustainability leadership and was trying to implement some of the tools that I was learning and moving forward with that. And so doing community interviews with people who do young adult ministry in the Catholic church, trying to figure out what's needed and where is the gap around climate justice and young adults in the Catholic church. And so out of that came this need and this gap around curriculum. And so both the formation the connection to our faith between the ecological reality and our faith calling, as well as just some training and action that goes beyond an individual sense of personal transformation to a communal sense of action. And with that and recognizing that, uh, like Teresa just said, that anything that was created by a single white woman would be totally like irrelevant to the reality of the world. <laughs> um, I uh, was pointed and connected with Teresa. And so she and I had a few conversations to talk about how this might go into development. And then when I met up with Anna Robertson, we talked about uh, doing it with the Catholic Climate Covenant and having it be a, a process that we worked on together. And then I got to meet Emily too. So beautiful mix. So to just close the loop on that whole process, then as this leadership team, this curriculum idea that Anna had already begun beginning to develop as a thought experiment at that point, we decided as a crew to present that to this larger working group of 30 young adults and say, do we want to work on developing a draft of this to present at our July conference? And that became the project of that working group. I have a couple follow-up questions. One is for 
Teresa, getting back to, to something that you said about getting involved with this needs or probably misframing how you said it, but something about the requirement or the need for this ancestral wisdom from Native and Indigenous climate, eco-spirituality. How do, how do you think that has shaped, like implementing some of that, how does that come to play in the curriculum and how has that, or how do you envision it transforming this work of climate advocacy? I've spoke on it a little bit when we were um, presenting this at the, I forget what the conference was, so I, yeah, the TTN conference, and I, with our Catholic faith, you pray to certain saints, or you pray, you just pray in general, and it will come back to you, and I mentioned that, you know, a, a, I mentioned a story, anything that you do, you pray, like when you offer something, the quickest one I could think of is like when I go to the ocean, like anytime I go to the ocean, I want to bring back water because that will bring back rain. You pray and you, you thank them. You think that. And so that's how, for me, that's how it went. And then how, what was the second part? How you imagine this wisdom, this ancient ancestral grounding, transforming climate advocacy. I think too, also just with my voice, when we did the, with the Catholic, like luncheon thing with the Catholic climate, I just, that day I was hungry. <laughs> and so I just called everybody out. And I think just having a voice and just letting them know, not only are like other countries or something like that are suffering, Native American communities are suffering. And for me, if you don't look at that, how can you actually want to do this and not actually look at Native American communities and seek um, not help or anything from Native American communities. But I just feel like there's a ton of things that I think we can learn from one another. And Native American communities have been saying about climate change, about global warming, but no one really ever listens. And so for me, I think that was another big key role in this was that for me, I'm putting the voice of others of my community out there. I told these group of young men, like you take advantage of everything that you do. Look at your own. And I hate saying this because I, like I said, I love these three and I hate when I have to sit, do this. You have to look at your own white and at what you could do, what you have. And I don't have that luxury. We, a lot of Native American communities don't have that luxury, but yet we're trying to do something. Like my, I, I've always said this to anybody where I live, I do see the effects of climate change. And like right now it is oddly warm. We're in the forties, fifties. We still haven't had a snowstorm. And usually we have a good snowstorm, a good rainstorm, nothing like, so I feel like my hope for um, this is, especially this curriculum, is just to put the thought out there. When I was doing my the my faith story with the USCCB, that's what I just, as long as we get the conversation going, and that's what I feel like that's my hope, is that once the conversation go, starts going, we see this curriculum, the people who are going to use this curriculum see it, they want to do more 
for not only for themselves, but like for their community or Native American community, maybe they'll look within around their native community and see what I don't want everyone to just start racing and start going to the reservation because you know I, I that's not what I want but I just want more recognition or just acknowledgement that of what we're also trying not what I'm doing but what right. is here because you can't really move on without knowing or praying like I said you pray to if people pray to Kateri, like how can you pray to her and not wonder what's going on within her own community or, or anything like that? Thank you for that, Teresa. Anna Johnson, I have a question for you. You mentioned, because you talked about like before you did this project that you saw all justice issues the same, but you're seeing climate as the most pressing just, justice issue. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, why is this the the most pressing injustice that we have to tackle or face? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it is I, I strongly believe that putting justice issues at a division with each other or in competition with each other is not the solution to this. And it's out of sync even with what we understand of how creation interacts with itself and with the other aspects of creation. So I would say that with this, the, the notice that it is an intersectional reality of um, climate justice needs to be intersectional with racial justice and intersectional with class justice and intersectional with so many of the other justice issues as well. Not to face and resolve climate justice at the expense of addressing these other issues, uh, because that will just perpetuate the systems of brokenness that have led us to the current reality of the climate crisis we find ourselves in. But that the ways that the climate crisis is playing out in the world, whether that be rising sea levels, whether that be intensifying storms, whether that be crazy wet, like just extremes of weather, like what Teresa was just naming is happening where she is. The impacts are hardest and worst upon communities that are on the margins. And so communities that are already facing so many injustices in the world, their challenges are being exacerbated by the climate issue. And so Teresa has told us story after story of how the reality of the changing temperatures is so much more impactful on her community than it is on ours. So like last summer, when in Seattle, we were in a heat dome and it was very hot here, I could still go inside. And yeah, I don't necessarily have air conditioning, but like I still had a climate protected home to some degree and, and other ways to escape that. So many people in Trace's community are dependent upon the land and upon the cows and where there's not the ability to still continue to, to subsist, right? And so, the issues that are being faced by communities around the world are being exacerbated and deepened by the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I would name that if we don't resolve the climate crisis, we won't have a world where these other justice issues will even exist because the way that our current trajectory is going with climate change and the lack of ability, the lack of willingness of major corporations and governments to change will continue to drive us deeper into this hole where life will just be, Emily, you probably know the right word, life will not be possible for humans on this planet. And so the other justice issues will cease to exist because 
we will cease to exist. So <laughs> the reality is hard, but it's important for us to face it. And I think that our faith gives us the tools to lean directly into the challenge and the disturbance and the issues of our day and, and face them head on and say, what can we do about it? Mm. Teresa and Anna, you just uh, talked a little bit about this, but I'll give some space for Anna Robertson and Emily to tap into this next question. But how has climate change injustice or environmental injustice impacted you and your communities? For my part, in some ways, I'm aware of the fact that my privilege continues to insulate me from the worst of climate change and environmental injustice, that I can get up and move to a different part of the city. I live now, I rent in a part of the city that's really close to the interstate where noise pollution and also air pollution are both issues. And if I were starting a family, maybe I would be concerned about asthma and I could choose to move, that I have that ability. So a lot of the ways that I'm aware of impacts are laced with reminders of the fact that I am still insulated. And yet, I think part of the work is making it personal. So really, it's easy to be like, oh, I'm not impacted yet. But that's not true either. And so I'm aware of the fact that I, like many people of my generation, I'm 30, college educated, the graduate degree, which means I've moved around a bunch from where I grew up, which means I've been continuously uprooting myself from deep community. And it's something that I'm still trying to build for myself where I am now. And that means that I'm having to grow my understanding of my own context and the ways that environmental justice is impacting, environmental injustice is impacting long established communities And this is all part of this larger issue, the societal issue of us uprooting ourselves from the land and from our communities. So I'm a microcosm of that. But if I look at where I'm from, Nashville, Tennessee, I see the increasingly strong storms, which I had an early experience of being impacted by a tornado. And so I'm really afraid of tornadoes. And a really concrete way that this impacts me is that it's hard for me to imagine moving back home, knowing that those tornadoes are becoming that much more frequent with these storms. I think for myself being in the Pacific Northwest, just since I've been here for five years, seeing the increased fire, wildfire season in the summer, the smoke season. Last year, there was a moment when I was sitting in my room in my rented apartment with an air conditioner, air filter, both running at the same time. And I'd purchased them both within the like month prior because I needed the air conditioning because it was so hot and I needed the air filter because of the wildfire smoke. And that was one of those moments where I was like, okay, we can't, none of us can stay insulated forever. So how can I work right now to like actually de-insulate myself in terms of my heart so that I am more aware of these impacts and One of the ways that it does impact a lot of us is mental health and climate anxiety. That's a real embodied experience. That's a real health impact. And I think people overlook that 
But that constant gnawing sense of dread that so many in our generation deal with, I am not unfamiliar with and having to work to develop the skills to stay healthy in the midst of a really uncertain future. So that's what I'll say. Emily, do you have anything you want to add? Not a ton. I think what Anna touched on last was what I was going to say, sort of, I feel like in my community, at least I'm geographically insulated from a lot of really apparent effects besides like longer heat waves or cold fronts or whatever. But thinking about communities, not necessarily geographical, but like young people as a community, I'd say that sort of the mental health effects that Anna mentioned at the end are a real problem. And I've certainly experienced the sort of lying awake at night with like panic in my stomach because it feels like I'm being taught in in college classes about climate science and like the trajectories that Anna Johnson was talking about and thinking about just in a few decades, just how much is going to change if inaction continues and persists and thinking about what my life will look like when I'm 30, 40, 50. And it's not that far away. And it feels a lot of people in this country still think that the effects of climate change for us at least are really far away and not going to be a problem in our lifetimes. But I think young people right now, especially it feels like the last couple of years have been like a really important like moment or turning point where young people are realizing like my life is going to be altered. I might have to make certain decisions based on the whatever ensues from runaway climate change. So I just say that not only is it like geographical or like weather effects, but like feeling effects since like Anna was saying, that's an embodied experience that I think a lot of young people are grappling in a way, grappling with in a way that uh, maybe our parents may not have or may not continue to do. Thank you for that. Two thoughts that came to mind real quick. One is based off of what Anna, what you shared, Anna Robertson, what you shared about why I think whiteness gives us a shield and an illusion of comfort and shield in all of this. And that concept of the embodied experience, my question, because Emily, you prompted this question. So I'm going to ask you this. You've mentioned laying wait at, at night. Is there a way that we can embody hope through all of this? I really like that question. For me, honestly, my experience with this group of people and with this curriculum and with Catholic Climate Covenant has given me a sense of hope that I didn't have before. I think I did a lot of environmental science stuff in undergrad. And so I was looking at the numbers and like the like yearly trajectories and like different degrees of warming based on what we change in the next couple years and what that might look like in 50 years. And so I was just feeling this like insane sense of dread that sort of carried me through my everyday. Like I would wake up and like go to class and like whatever, but it was just this like panicked feeling that never like quite left my chest. And my experience doing divestment work at Creighton and seeing 
hundreds of students do something that was a uncomfortable to them or new to them or whatever because they were motivated by maybe not as intense of a sense of dread but like this sort of panicked feeling about like uncertainty of the future and things like that I was like okay like I'm watching people change their like course of their day like to show up to this protest or take time from whatever they would be doing otherwise and help me write this petition and like that sort of got I'd say like the hope wheels turning in my head but then my experience with this curriculum and this group of young people that we assembled and worked with super successfully and I feel like we all got like the whole working group of 30 people I feel like we all threw ourselves into this for just a little bit and it was all voluntary and like people applied for this so like seeing people put in that time effort energy into something that they saw as like promising to change the sort of thought process of other young people then really gave me a taste of okay there's hope there's people that are willing to do things and maybe we're not seeing it hugely in like the news with like corporations making these changes or whatever but there's people, there's Catholics, there's young people on the ground who are honestly giving their all. And that really eased that panic for me. And obviously climate anxiety is still real because like it's still happening, but it feels really comforting knowing that A, I'm not the only one that's panicking, but B, that other people are willing to stand up, step up, give time and their talent and things like that it's given me hope. Yeah. I wanted to also circle back with Teresa and Anna Johnson. I don't know if you, if either one of you wanted to share more about how, what's impacting your communities bouncing around, but I know that Teresa, you started to say in er earlier about that, but I didn't know if you had more that you wanted to add. No, I think I spoke on this with the ladies during the summer when we were doing this, we were deep in a uh, drought and we had even a memo from the Navajo Nation on downsizing your herd, those who had livestock. And the, how I see it now, I'm in Stevens to Paul and I have a wood vendor, one wood vendor who I go to all the time. And it's been really slow. Usually last year around this time we have, I have to divide it up between three wood vendors. And this time I'm lucky to have at least one wood order for him. Mm. And that's because it's been so warm. And I don't know about this week, maybe we'll get lucky. I'll get lucky tomorrow with wood orders, but that's how it affects you. But it's been oddly warm. And I, I that's how it affects my community. The water, especially for a while, I know we have one water pump from our local utility. Um, company and they I don't know at some point they had shut it off or locked it put a lock on it I don't know but yeah water has been very concerning for us the water at we have I live like an hour away from Lake Powell and that's a man-made lake and the water is extremely low it's probably going to go back to a river pretty soon for the river because though we have no rain there's no 
they're releasing a lot of water too, I think. But I don't know if you guys ever been there, the Lone Rock, it's called Lone Rock. There's no water surrounding it at all. Just things like that. That's how it's been affecting mine with the drought and everything like that. And Teresa, if something that you shared um, earlier in our around an effect that you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it really stuck with me was when we were in the droughts or when you were in the droughts, sorry, this summer. We um, were all in it together. <laughs> yeah, right. When you all were really experiencing the brunt of the droughts and people were having, ranchers were having to cull cattle. So they were having their cattle because they didn't have enough water to sustain them, which obviously has financial impacts. But as I understand from what you said, it's also an important like aspect of your culture, cattle tending. So there was cultural impacts and of course, financial impacts in this really yeah. direct way that really stuck with me. Yeah, no, that's a correct because livestock is our, my, uh, my dad's aunt, my grandmother, she had livestock and that's a way of life because she was a, a weaver. So she had her herd of sheep. And so for a lot of us, that is our lifestyle. One of my good friends, he has a horse and he was slowly building his livestock and, but he had to go back to work. And so there's really no one to take care of it. So he unfortunately has to, he, I don't know if he, I think he was going to try and sell some of his livestock because he has no time to take care for it. And, but for a lot of them, this is their livelihood. This is their source of income. And I know in the Navajo Times, they did an article where a family had a big herd and every year they're having a downsize. And I don't think they even have a herd of cattle anymore because of the whole impact. And I know with the Navajo Nation, when we were, there, when we were getting money from the Navajo Nation, that was one of the things like, is your, do you have livestock? Is that the reason why you're going to use this money? And um, yeah. That's been one of our impacts too, I think. And, but as long as I can let everybody know, because I know I did an article too with Earthbeat, I think, yeah. And they, and that's the one thing that I emphasize was the droughts. And then it affects us like with the weather. That week, I kept going in and out of Wi Fi service because of the heat and then the cell service. So, yeah, it's, it's real bad here. And it happened at our conference presentation. Yeah, yeah, the, they did a, there was like a blackout. Yeah, 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 in literally. In the middle of our live conference presentation about this curriculum to raise this internet cut out because of the heat. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for sharing all of that. I wanted to be also mindful of the time. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I did want to ask a couple more questions because we never addressed this. But what were the prominent themes in this curriculum and what are some things that you're hoping young adults who access it will, what are some hopes that you want them to, and things that you want them to walk away with? AJ, you want to speak to this? Sure. Yeah. So we have um, three main sections of the curriculum, I guess. One is a, a deep rooting in, in, we call it spirituality and it's spirituality rooted in ecology, but we don't want to ever say that ecological spirituality could be separate from our spirituality because they are intimately intertwined. So a, a deepening into that reality of, and our hope for that is that young adults will walk out and say, my Catholic faith is integrally intertwined with spirituality that is rooted in our earth and that we are called to be in a, a reciprocal relationship with earth. 
The next section is about personal transformation and um, it includes some of the science, some of the realities of what's going on around the world and then ways that we can take personal action towards living a more sustainable lifestyle with the idea that we need to be living it out ourselves in order to be authentic to what we're asking of other folks and to understand also what are the realities that we're facing as we try and make these transitions. And then the last section is social action and structural advocacy. Did I swap those? Emily, or did I say that right? Yep. <laughs> and that is a moving, that moves us through the C-Judge Evaluate Celebrate process, uh, the pastoral process, and trains young adults in how to do movement building and really create a structural change in our society. And so for young adults coming out of this, what our hope is that uh, we will each be personally transformed and that we will feel empowered with both the, the faith backing and the tools to take substantive action for climate justice through specific actions and intentional action, intentional planning and strategizing and moving forward, uh, rooted as people of faith and rooted as knowing that our faith ha offers us this hope to keep moving forward and our community offers us a hope to keep moving forward. To also build community around that and be rooted in a sense of just that deep relationship. What did I miss you guys, ladies? I think you covered most of the bases what's a way, and they're often asking me, what's a way that I, we can support young adults? What's a way that our writer or our readers of this issue can support young adults in this, both in this curriculum and in climate advocacy? I love this question. Others feel free to chime in, but I think like real listening, go where young adults are and that may or may not be in the places that you already are. There will be some young adults in your immediate surroundings. So definitely listen to them. But like right now, a lot of young adults are in the streets, like protesting. And if our faith communities aren't there, then young adults who are there aren't going to see an alignment with their values in our faith communities. And there can also be this sense of, wanting to hear, wanting young adults to be present. But often there can be some discomfort with some of these wacky ideas that young adults bring to the table. And so really like taking that risk to, to back up, to let young adults like drive the ship and to bring their ideas to fruition. That's what's been so cool about this process of this curriculum is that We've gotten to build this tool for young adults by young adults, and we are bringing in some wisdom now. We're in a process right now where we're getting feedback from various stakeholders throughout the country, and there's still some more steps before this is finalized. So it's not an echo chamber, but I think that often young adults can feel tokenized in church spaces. and. People will say that they want to hear from young adults, but when it really comes down to it, many young adults express not feeling listened to. So getting curious about that feedback and how can we risk real connection and real, real relationship with young people? Anything to add? 
No, and I think what Anna had said perfectly is just to listen and not, and for me, it's like actually listening and not make fun of, oh, you guys are this and that. I think that's a key thing. And just, I'm sure if you just ask a simple question, I don't know what a simple question would be, but just be generous, genuinely interested. I think um, we are willing to let you know. Like I said, like when I, when we went green, I thought we would get a lot of pushback because we are, ha- we do have a lot of elderly and especially within my Kateri circle, they're all older, they're older ladies. And so I didn't think that, I didn't know whether or not they would be like, oh, oh, the, like the younger generation just like, like that, but they all understood and then they literally like when we they noticed we stopped using like paper plates or like styrofoam plates and we were actually using dishes and utensils they asked why are we doing this and then so that's when or why are we using this and then when I would let them know further they were interested and they oh okay and then where can I learn more information about this I think of just little things like that I think that's one thing just be just ask a question how can I stop plastic or how can I help next time if you're doing something? I think that's a key thing too. I think part of it is also part of the reality of intergenerational dialogue is that we all have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And so to step outside of our comfort zones and again, not to uh, reiterate the same thing, but to reiterate the same thing, to really listen and to, to allow it to disturb us and have that move us towards something else. And so to rather than trying to find the reasons that it won't work, see if we can lift up the voices of young people and see what reasons it can work. Like even for me, honestly, sometimes listening to high schoolers, I am like blown away and I get uncomfortable, right? So it's, we're not a monolith, but we definitely have a whole spectrum of stuff and we need to be in inauthentic and open relationship with each other where we can listen to wisdom and also be heard and have that work together rather than think that any one of us, any one of our groups will save ourselves. It's going to happen together. I think the only thing I second everything that everybody said, the only thing that I can think to add is like an element of trust. I think, I mean, like young people are, they're doing things like you said, Samantha, they're in the streets. I don't know who said that actually. Someone said young people are in the streets protesting and like students are getting schools to divest. Look at us, a group of 30 young people decided to make a curriculum to disseminate throughout all of our faith communities. And I just think that sometimes the sort of wisdom that Anna Johnson was talking about was, is taken as wisdom that can only be gained through like years when and I think the idea that older generations can start to become more comfortable with letting young people take the lead especially on issues like climate change where they are the ones in the streets protesting and you know the ones whose sort of decisions about their lives have to be in tune with what's happening with climate change and things like that I think even just starting to think about the idea that maybe young people can begin to lead the church as uncomfortable as that might seem for people I think is a real possibility to make some real change and we all know that our Catholic Church moves very slowly and time's not something that we have on an issue of climate change 
that's all I would add is just letting, perhaps letting young people take the driver's seat and seeing where that takes us. Well, thank you for all of your rich and wise responses and giving me this gift of your time. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time when I sit down with Cole Arthur Riley of Black Liturgies. If you enjoyed this content and want to hit more, be sure to hit the subscribe button and listen to Spotify, Apple, or Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.